The following is a message from our 10-week series, Hashtag Happy. For more, visit LinworthRoadChurch.com. Well, good morning. It's good to see you all this morning. Uh, today we find ourselves in week eight of our Hashtag Happy series. And uh, we trust that this has been a helpful and an encouraging series. I know for me personally, I have really benefited from uh, thinking about and diving into some of these topics in a more thorough way. And today's topic, this morning's topic, is really no different. And that's because this morning we want to look at happy work. Uh, you know, for many Americans, including some Christians, the thought of, of happy work sounds like a bad joke. And that's because many of their attitudes about work are characterized by uh, things like this. But I don't want to go to work tomorrow. Or maybe this, the, the Sunday blues. Has anyone ever gotten the Sunday night blues? Or uh, this, my, my Saturday was going pretty well until I realized it was Sunday. <laughs> or uh, that moment when you think it's Friday, but it's actually only Wednesday. Have you ever woke up and realized that? Or, or what about hump day? This is a popular one now on social media. Or what about the song we just heard? Everybody's working for the weekend. And just so you moms don't feel left out, what about this one? Woohoo, it's Friday. Oh, wait, I'm a mom. <laughs> Never stops, right? So can any of you guys relate to those, uh, those sayings, those memes up there? I know that at times I can. And in fact, one article I ran across this week, it, it argued that, that 90% of workers are unhappy and or are dissatisfied with their jobs. And 90%, that sounds ridiculously high. I hope that that's not true. But, but even if that's off by a little bit, I, I think it is fair to say that, that that attitude is probably true of a large number of people. And yet the thing that's interesting to think about is that I seriously doubt that that mentality, that that attitude was true of workers 70 years ago. Right? So in other words, I, I seriously doubt that our 90% of our great-grandparents or our grandparents uh, walked around feeling dissatisfied or unhappy in their jobs. And yet if you've ever talked with a, a great-grandparent or a grandparent about their, their job, you know that the work environments and that the opportunity for advancement and so on were nowhere near what they are today. And actually, because this type of, of attitude and mentality is so prevalent in our society, uh, some companies have gone so far as to hire a CHO. And some of you are probably wondering, what in the world is a CHO? Well, uh, you see, most companies, they have a CEO, uh, a COO, a CFO. Uh, some have a CTO, which is Chief Technology Officer. But, but actually, have you ever heard of a CHO? Well, I hadn't until this week, but apparently there is a corner office for a CHO that stands for Chief Happiness Officer. And I know that sounds ridiculous, but if you don't believe me, you can look it up. But, but here's why companies are doing this. Companies appoint a CHO for one simple reason. Because they are realizing that happy workplaces make more money. In fact, studies are showing that, that happy employees are more productive, more innovative, more motivated, more energetic, and more optimistic. They are also less sick, stay with the company longer, and make the customers more loyal. And for those reasons and many others, happy companies make more money. And so clearly, companies have a financial incentive to try to increase their employees' happiness. But why here as a church are we talking about this this morning? Well, you see, the, the reality is this. 
If, if most of you, or let's just say even some of you, are miserable and unhappy at work, again, as the statistics would suggest, then most likely that is affecting your overall happiness in general. Right? How, how could it not? I mean, our jobs, they take up a huge percentage of the hours in our work week, or, or in our week in general. In fact, uh, studies are showing that the U.S. is the most overworked nation in the world. And according to one article, it said in the U.S., 85.8% of males and 66.5% of females work more than 40 hours per week. I went on to say in that article that Americans work 137 hours more per uh, year than the Japanese workers. They work 260 more hours per year than the French workers. And not surprisingly, we work 499 more hours per year than the French workers. Um, And again, the point I'm trying to make is this. If your job makes you unhappy, if you really are living your life working for the weekend, that mentality, that attitude will have a profound impact on your everyday joy, on your everyday happiness. And so this morning, I want to address what I think are three misconceptions about work, which, which I think leads to some of this unhappiness. And then I want to finish by looking at three motivations for work. But before we dive in, let's pray. Father, thank you uh, for this morning. Uh, God, we thank you that uh, you're here among us by uh, the power of your Spirit. And so, Lord, we just ask that you uh, would give us uh, tender hearts this morning to hear from you. God, you'd give us ears to hear, eyes to see, and a heart to know. And so, I pray you bless our time. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, well, you can go ahead and open up your Bible to Genesis chapter 1. And the first misconception we want to look at this morning in relation to work is this, that work is a necessary evil. You see, I think for many of us, we've, we've come to believe that work is a, essentially a, a negative or it's a bad thing in our lives. Again, we think uh, of it or we treat it as if it's this necessary evil, you know, as if it's something that we have to do, not something that we get to do. In other words, I, I'm convinced many of us believe that our lives would be so much better, so much happier if we just didn't have to work. But when we come to the Bible, we realize that work was a part of God's good and beautiful design in his creation. And so let's, let's look at this. Look at Genesis 1.1. It says this, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so what is that saying? Well, according to one Old Testament scholar, in this section of the creation account, God's creative activity is described twice as his work. You see, the Old Testament it has two words for labor, and the one used here means skilled labor. Or in other words, it, it's work that is performed by a craftsman or an artisan. And so with that in mind, what is this telling us? Well, it's telling us that in the beginning, God worked. In fact, uh, later on in Genesis 2.1, it says this, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and he made it holy because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. And so again here, we see in the beginning of Genesis that God himself works. And we know from the rest of scripture that that God is good and right and holy And so if that is true, then work in and of itself cannot be an evil or a bad thing. 
And again, if we keep on reading in the, the Genesis account, we see uh, back in Genesis 1.28 that we were created in his likeness and image, and therefore he created us to work. Let's, let's look at it. Genesis 1.28-31. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. You know, a little bit later on in in Genesis 2.15, we read that the Lord God took the man and he put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And so in the story of creation, God creates man and woman in his image and then he commissions them to get to work. And so when you stop and you think about it, you realize that work was created, that we were given that as a task before the fall. And so what that means is this, the idea of work is not evil, but rather it is a good, right gift from the Lord. And so maybe you're wondering, well, if that's true, why do I hate it so much? Why am I already depressed that it's Sunday and the weekend's basically over? Well, that's because of what happened and what took place in Genesis chapter 3. You see, in Genesis 3, we're told that, that Adam and Eve, they rebelled against God, that they, they chose to listen to the, ser- the serpent instead of God. And as a result, they brought into our world and into humanity sin and death. But not only that, if we uh, pick up the story in Genesis three seventeen, we read this. And this is God talking to Adam. It says, And to Adam, he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return." And so here we see in these verses that sin has marred and affected every area of our lives, including our work. And and on this point, author Tim Keller writes this. He says, work is not itself a curse, but it now lies with all other aspects of human life under the curse of sin. Thorns and thistles will come up as we seek to grow food. And when we remember that gardening is representative of all kinds of human labor and cultural building, this is a statement that all work and human effort will be marked by frustration and a lack of fulfillment. And so again, the, the misconception we're dealing with here is that work is a necessary evil. But when we set it in the context of the biblical story, we see that work is not a necessary evil, but rather it is a good God-given gift but that it is one that has been tainted and affected by the fall. And so it's important that we get this, that we understand that we serve a God who himself works and who created us to work as a part of his original design, as a part of his good creation. But it's also important that we understand that because of sin, because of the fall, work 
will at times be frustrating. It will at times be difficult. In other words, weeds will grow in the gardens. Viruses will attack our computers. Customers will unfairly complain and give you bad reviews online. And so this is our reality. But again, we have to step back and and realize that that does not mean that work is bad or that it's evil. And and so that's the first misconception. Let's move on to the second. And that is this, that, that work is the source of my identity. In other words, some of us have made work the thing that defines who we are. And it's the thing that we use to derive or to measure our value. And it's so easy for us to do today in American culture. And, and I think this plays itself out in a couple of ways. For, for example, when you meet somebody new for the first time and they ask you, uh, what do you do for a living? If, if in that moment you are overly excited to answer that question, if, if in that moment you uh, view this as your opportunity to, to boast about or to brag about what you do and, you know, about how much money you make and, and maybe you would never explicitly say, you know, well, I make, you know, six figures or whatever it is, uh, you frame that question or your, your answer to that question in such a way that it's obvious that, you know, you're doing pretty well, that you've been climbing the ladder and so on. Or if you're overly obsessed with titles, in other words, you get angry when someone mistakes your title or, or they forget to use it in front of your name. And so they're like, oh, hey, John, how you doing? And you're like, you correct them. You're like, well, actually, it's, it's Dr. Smith. Or it's, you know, actually, I prefer Professor Smith or even Pastor Smith. Now, look, I'm not saying that you shouldn't feel pride or, 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 or feel good about your work, your accomplishments. But what I am saying is that you shouldn't find your identity in what you do, but rather If you're a follower of Jesus, your identity is in the person and in the work of Jesus Christ. You see, it's really dangerous to put your identity, to put your self-worth in something that can be taken away from you. You know, this one pastor uh, in the previous century in England, his name was uh, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. And uh, he, before he was a pastor, he had worked as a medical doctor. And, and uh, this one time he was talking about that, that for many of his colleagues, some of his, his fellow students in medical school and, and also fellow doctors he worked alongside, he said for many of them, you could have put on their gravestone something like this, born a man, died a doctor. In other words, what he was getting at, what he was getting at is that for many of his fellow doctors, that accomplishment, that title, it meant everything to them. It was the thing that defined who they were. But again, how, how dangerous, how, and perhaps even how dumb is it to put your identity, to put your value in something that can be taken away from you? Right? Because what happens if, if you're the doctor, but you lose your medical license for some reason? Or what happens if you're the surgeon, but you get Parkinson's disease? Or what happens if you're the financial planner or the the investor and the market crashes? Well, if you have put your hope, if you have put your identity in that, if you've put your identity in what you do instead of who you are, then you will be crushed. You will be devastated when it's taken away. In fact, there's there's all kinds of, of proof of this. Back in 2008, when the, when the housing market crashed, you had all of these, these high uh, CEOs of companies and these, these, these people who were high up in their companies commit suicide. And that's because they had put their identity in what they did rather than who they were. And so that's one way that work is revealed as our identity or as an idol in our life. But, 
But what if we ask, if you're asked the question, what do you do for a living? And instead of bragging, instead of boasting, you feel tempted to embellish or to inaccurately represent what you do. Or if in other words, what if you're like this guy, uh, Dwight K. Shrew, and someone asks you what you do and you say, well, I'm the assistant regional manager, but in actuality, he's the assistant to the regional manager. And if you've seen the show, it's a, it's a joke throughout, but um, and so again, what, what about if, if you make work your primary identity and you're tempted to embellish or misrepresent what you do? Or lastly, another way that this question can reveal if it's your identity is if you feel embarrassed to answer the question. In other words, if you dread that question, you hate going to parties because you know at some point someone's going to ask you what you do because you're ashamed of what you do. And if that's true, then most likely you have made work into your identity. And so if you answer the question by saying, well, I'm just a such and such. Just a? Why why do you need that as a qualifier? You're not just a stay-at-home mom. You're not just a waitress or whatever it is. Because again, we have to remember work is what we do. It is not who we are. Brothers and sisters, we Our identities are in Jesus Christ. As we just sang, we are children of God. You know, for me personally, I've kind of been all over the map in terms of finding my identity and my work. I I remember when I first started my old job. uh, Some of you know what I I used to do. but, But when I first started, I was 19. I was making the most money I'd ever made. I was making more money than my peers. And and at the time, I, I was uh, allowed to say what I did. I was allowed to talk about who I worked for. And, and so I used to, I could not wait for people to ask me this question. And, and they would ask me, and I'd be like, oh, well, I'm the personal assistant to the CEO of such and such a company. And I've realized recently, I think when I answered that question, it was almost as if I felt like I was the CEO of that company. You know, I like, I just was so delusional as to what I actually was. I was like, oh, I'm just getting him coffee. But, but it felt like I, I had a lot of pride in the fact that I was running this huge company. And uh, well, some, some things started to change. I worked there for 11 years and, and somewhere along the way, my peers started making more money than me. And so that was one, one problem. But, but the other thing was, is at some point they decided they they no longer wanted us to share who we worked for and kind of what we did. And, and so then I, I got to a point where I felt embarrassed to talk about what I did. And, and the other thing that happened was Dow Nabby came out and then people realized like, oh, you're, you're like one of those servant people, right? And it's like, yeah, basically, that's what I am. Um, and so again, I, all that to say, I can relate to this. This is a temptation for me. But again, it is a misconception. Our identity is not in what we do. Our identity is in Jesus Christ. Okay, so the last misconception we want to look at this morning is this. And I'm sure there are many others. These are just the three that that came to to my mind. Um, The third one is this, that only Christian ministry is God's work. In other words, I think some of us are tempted to believe that only pastors and missionaries or, or others like them are truly doing God's work. You see, for some of us, we have made an unnecessary distinction between secular work and spiritual work. For example, David Murray, in in his book, The Happy Christian, he he lists a few statements that he has heard along the way as a pastor by by people in his congregation. They've said things like this. "A, A pastor's work is divine calling, but mine isn't. Or my work is not as important as ministry work. Or pastors and missionaries are worth more to God than I am. 
Or lastly, something like this, I wish that I could serve God more than just one day a week. And Murray continues, he says, what's at the root of all of this is an unbiblical view of work. The false idea that only ministry callings are divine callings, that only ministry work is real work, that only overtly Christian work is worthwhile work, and that only ministry work is Christian work. And yet when we come to the Bible, we see, as Murray says, that this is an unbiblical view, that this is simply not true. And the theologian in church history who did the most to combat this uh, misconception was a guy named Martin Luther. You know, in Luther's day, uh, only monks, priests, and nuns were considered to be doing God's work. Whereas everyone else was considered, uh, their work was considered secular, or it was even considered second rate. And yet Luther, he flat out rejected that idea. In fact, in many ways, he is the person responsible for elevating and for promoting the biblical doctrine of the priesthood of all believers. And one of the ways that Luther did this was, was by pointing out that, that the Bible, uh, when it talks about work, there's all these verses that talk about God doing things for his creation. And in one passage that he taught on was Psalm 147. And you can turn there if you want. We're going to look at a few verses. But uh, in verse 13 of Psalm 147, it says this. In talking about God, it says, For he strengthens the bars of your gates. And so Luther stopped and he asked the question. He said, uh, he wrote this. He said, by the word bars, we must understand not only the bar that a blacksmith can make, but everything else that helps to protect us, such as good government, good city ordinances, good order, and wise rulers. This is a gift of God. In other words, Luther, he, he said, how does God practically strengthen the bars of your gates? Well, God practically does that work by using people and their vocations to accomplish this work. And Luther, he, he talked about uh, work as us being the fingers of God. Uh, you know, this, there's really quite a few verses in this chapter that you could do this with. For example, look at verse 3. It says, He heals the brokenhearted and He binds up their wounds. Well, we know that sometimes that, that God just speaks a word and brings healing uh, and all, of, all, all on his own. And so we pray and, and God heals us emotionally or we pray and, and God brings physical healing. But oftentimes God chooses to use people and their work or their vocation to do this as well. He uses counselors to heal the brokenhearted. He uses doctors and nurses to bind up people's wounds. Uh, it says in verse 9 that he gives to the beast their food. And so if you think about it, what that means is that the farmer who grows crops and feeds his livestock, that farmer is doing God's work. They are acting as the fingers of God. They are being used to accomplish his purposes. And that's even true of a cashier at Petland, right? You think of that cashier, he has no idea what he's doing. But what he's actually doing is he's being used by God to fulfill verse 9. You know, in a different place in the Bible, Luther, uh, in the Lord's Prayer, it says, uh, give us this day our daily bread. And commenting on that, Luther wrote this. He said, give us this day our daily bread. When you pray for daily bread, you are praying for everything that contributes to your having and enjoying your daily bread. You must open up and expand your thinking so that it reaches not only as far as the flour bin and the baking oven, but also to the broad fields, the farmland, the entire country that produces 
processes and conveys to us our daily bread and all kinds of a nourishment. And so really, when you grab on to what the Bible teaches and what Luther pointed out, you begin to realize that all work, as long as it's not immoral or illegal, that all work is in fact considered God's work. And this really is a powerful truth. I mean, uh, this teaching of, of Luther really led the way for what has been called the Protestant work ethic. And if you've ever heard that or studied that, you know that that, that is so shaped and, and even been the source of our prosperity as a country. Because what it did was it gave dignity and value to all vocations and work, including the ones that we would consider insignificant or embarrassing. Uh, you know, Tim Keller, he's taught a lot about work and faith. And, and in this one uh, teaching I heard, he talked about, you, do you realize that if someone doesn't clean your house, whether it's you or if you hire someone, that if someone doesn't clean your house, you will die. And they're like, wait, really? But if you stop and think about it, if, if the trash never got taken out, if you never cleaned that cutting board after you cut chicken on it, and instead you just, you cut the chicken on it, and then you put the vegetables, and then your kid rubs it on his face, and all of these things, somebody's going to die. And so even cleaning our houses is an act, uh, is work unto God. We are being the fingers of God. You know, I think this is something that has been misunderstood for a long time. I know it's something that, that I have misunderstood. You know, I, I felt called to become a pastor pretty early on in my Christian walk. And at the time, the, the community I was a part of, we put a, a large emphasis on believers going into full-time ministry. And so uh, what that did is it put a kind of pressure on people, and in particular put pressure on men to become uh, either a pastor or a missionary or something like that. And so there was a time in my life and, and, uh, where everyone, all of my friends, we were all thought we were going to go into full-time ministry. And it really was kind of the norm in our community. And there was even a sense in which I would have said that that was the way that it should be. But a few things that happened along the way that really began to challenge that way of thinking for me. And, and one really significant thing was I became good friends with this guy named Aaron Montello. Now, Aaron was from Wisconsin, but he was here in Columbus uh, getting his doctorate in engineering at Ohio State. And uh, his wife, him and Melissa, they went here to Linworth for quite a few years and, until he graduated and then they moved back home. And, and Aaron, the thing about Aaron is this, he is the smartest person I've ever met personally. I mean, he's one of those guys that's just sort of spooky smart. And yet when he, you talk to him, he doesn't talk over your head. He doesn't, in fact, he's actually a really good teacher and he can explain really complicated ideas in a very simple way. And so one of my favorite pastimes was just asking him how things work, you know, and it could be things outside of engineering. He was just so smart, he could, he could explain it to you. But not only that, not only was he super smart, he was also a man of incredible integrity. His character was unbelievable. He really does love God and loves others so well. And so because of that, I used to try to convince him that he should give up engineering and go into ministry because I felt like that was the spiritual thing to do. I mean, why waste his life as an engineer when he could be a pastor or a Christian professor? And yet Aaron, to his credit, he was so unwavering. He felt so secure and confident that God had gifted him, that God had called him to become an engineer. And so no matter what I or his other friends did, he was unmoved. 
A few years ago, my wife and I, we went up to Minnesota to visit them and to spend some time. And, and this one particular day, we were traveling back from northern Minnesota down to Minneapolis, and we split up the car. And so uh, him and I found ourselves alone together on a long car ride. And as we began to ride, I just felt uh, uh, convicted by the Spirit that I needed to apologize to him. And so I just began to tell him, you know, I'm sorry for all the ways that I pressured you. For all the ways I tried to make you feel guilty or, or second rate or, or less spiritual in relation to your calling as an engineer. And that was because the Lord had, again, he had started to reveal to me this, this unbiblical view of work. And, and I just began to affirm him. And I just told him, I said, man, I'm so proud of you. And I really believe that God has, has wired you and gifted you to be an engineer. And so I'm just so proud of you that you have pursued it and have become one. And it was just this really cool moment in our friendship because I could tell that, and he even expressed in that conversation, that my apology, that, that my words of affirmation meant so much to him. And so with that said, I just want to apologize on behalf of, of people in ministry if we have somehow communicated that our work, that what we do is better or that it's more spiritual than yours because the Bible simply doesn't make those distinctions. You know, kind of the big verse everyone talks about when talking about work is Colossians three twenty three and 24, and it says this, whatever you do, so whether you're a, a mom or a minister or uh, whatever, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. And so whether you're a mom, a maintenance man, a manager, or a minister, you and I, we are serving Christ. And so that's the third misconception. So let's move on and let's look at three motivators for our work. And the first one is this. In order to increase your happiness, you are going to have to view your work as a calling. In other words, you're going to have to have a sense of meaning, a sense of purpose behind your work. You see, nothing will make you, uh, make you more unhappy than believing that your work is meaningless. But again, if you understand everything we have just talked about in regards to work and what the Bible says about work, then no work is truly meaningless. You see, just like with a lot of different things that we've talked about in this series, much of our joy, much of our happiness is affected by negative thoughts and beliefs. And so oftentimes we're able to increase our happiness by simply believing the truths that we see revealed in the Word of God. And therefore what that does is it changes our perspective. And you know, on this thought of understanding work as a calling, uh, Dr. Henry Cloud in his book, The Law of Happiness, uh, he has this one chapter on calling and he, talks, uh, he tells the story of these two different men that he met. And, and both of these men were home builders, but they viewed their work with two totally different perspectives. And so in that chapter, Cloud writes this. He says, I was talking to a man in the home building business who was considering a career change, as he put it. When I asked him why, he said something like this. Building houses has no meaning. I want my work to mean something. I buy a piece of land. I build a bunch of houses and then turn around and then sell them and make a pile of money. And then I go to the next deal. It just doesn't mean anything. He said, I hate my work. Not long after, I was talking to another home builder, and he said something quite different. He said, I love my work. If it, if it weren't for my work, I don't know what I would do. Why is that, I asked. He said, it just gives me so much meaning, he said. 
It starts when I look at a piece of land from the helicopter. In my mind's eye, I see cul-de-sacs with children playing and green belts with playgrounds that they are riding their bikes in. And then when we design the houses, I, I meet with the architects I make, and I make sure that the homes are planned in such a way that they have a great spaces for people to be together. Like, don't put the kitchen around the corner from the den, I tell the architects. Everyone should be connected so whoever is cooking is right in the action. Then I see the fireplace where the stockings will hang at Christmas, where the kids will be gathered, or the stairs where a teenage girl will one, way, one day walk down in her prom dress to meet her date. When I think about how we are creating communities and homes where people build their lives, their families, and their friendships, I mean, what could have more meaning than that? And so, wow, here you have two men doing the exact same job, but one has understood his job as a calling, one has understood that there's meaning, that there's purpose behind it, and the other has not. To him, it's just a paycheck. And so this is crazy because, because secular research has also discovered that this is, in fact, uh, a, a way to increase your joy. In fact, one article I read, it, it read uh, as the number one way to be happier at work was to have a sense of meaning. And yet the truth is, is if you are a Christian, no matter what kind of work you do, it has meaning. Again, because we saw, as we saw in Colossians 3, when we work, we are serving Christ. And so that's the first motivation. Understand your work as a calling, as something that has meaning. And the second thing you can do to bring uh, or increase joy in your work is this, is to practice gratitude. Now look, I, I realize that this is really hard if you're in a job that you hate. But there's this crazy verse in 1 Thessalonians 5 that says this. It says, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances. Why? For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. And so again, maybe some of you in your jobs right now, you think, I can't imagine one thing I could be grateful for, one thing I could give thanks for. Well, I know you've probably thought of this, but maybe just give thanks for the fact that you have a job right now, or, or maybe give thanks for the fact that you can, your, your body, your mind is still able to work. If you work inside all day, give thanks that you don't have to work out in the heat or in the cold. If you work outside, then give thanks that you're not trapped inside of four walls and that you actually get to be out in nature, right? I know it sounds crazy. I'm looking at my brother-in-law and he hates working outside, but trust me, brother, I'm in a room with no uh, windows. It's terrible. I would love to be outside. You know, I, I love my job right now, and I'm so grateful for it. And in fact, I, I tell people all the time, I, I never dread work. I never think, oh man, tomorrow's such and such, or, or oh, I got to go to work tomorrow. I never think like that, and I'm so grateful that that's true. But, but there were a lot of years where I was unhappy and miserable in, in my work. And, and, and oftentimes, I would have to remind myself of what my grandfather did for a living. You see, my mom's dad, he was a coal miner in West Virginia, but but not only that, he also ran a farm and he had nine kids. And so honestly, there were times at my old job where I would just, the only thing I could be thankful for was that I was not a coal miner with nine kids. And it, it, I'm serious, it helped me. I just think, oh, well, it could always be worse. Um, but here's the thing. Not only is giving thanks and being grateful God's will for you in Christ Jesus, as it says in Thessalonians, but it actually, when we do that, it actually increases our joy and our happiness. 
And going back to Dr. Henry Cloud in his book, The Law of Happiness, he, he talks about how research done in the last decade has shown that one of the most powerful findings proven over and over is this, that grateful people are happier people. People who practice uh, gratefulness regularly have significantly different levels of happiness than those who don't. And so that's the second thing, practice gratitude. And then finally, and band, you can go ahead and work your way up. The last motivating action that we can do is to remember the gospel. And I was even joking uh, in, in our programming meeting before, isn't that always the last application of every message? And, and, and there's a reason why. You see, if we go back to those three misconceptions about work, we see that in the gospel, those misconceptions are taken away or they are cleared up. Because if Christ and what he did on the cross, what he did in there is he's redeeming, one of the things he did is he's redeeming work. He's, He's restoring work back to its original design. You see, there's places in the book of Isaiah that actually talk about uh, when we're on the new heavens and the new earth, we will actually work. See, I think a lot of us have believed we're just going to be on clouds and harps and singing to the Lord and whatever, but actually what the, what the Bible teaches is that we will work, that we will have a, a purpose. And so uh, think about that. When, when you think about your work now and you think about the ways that sin has affected and, and made it frustrating... Think about that all be taking away. And so we will find work fulfilling and satisfying the way that it was originally designed. But not only that, because of the gospel, we see that our identity is not found in what we do, but in who we are. Again, the gospel just totally destroys the misconception that work has to be our identity because the gospel shows us that our identity is in Christ. It says in Colossians 3, 3, that for you have died... And your life is now hidden with Christ and God. And then finally, in the gospel, we see that we are all equal at the foot of the cross. And therefore, my work as a pastor is no better or more significant than your work as a teacher or your work as an accountant. You see, the Holy Spirit has given each of us different gifts and different talents and different roles. And so instead of comparing ourselves to each other, let us strive to be faithful to the work that God has called each of us to do. Let's pray. Father, God, we thank you so much that, that work is not this, this negative or this bad thing in our lives, but in fact, it is, it is something that you have given us that is a good and right gift. And Father, we recognize that because of the fall, it will be difficult, it will be frustrating, but Lord, we thank you that, that because of you, it doesn't have to be our identity, that because of you, work can actually, we can have joy, we can have uh, fulfillment when we realize that all work is to you, is for you. And so God, help us to be faithful as the fingers of God in this world. Help us to be, help us to be faithful to, to contribute to human flourishing in our, in our works, Lord. Lord, for anyone today who is just struggling, Lord, who hates their job, I just pray that you could just give them a change of perspective. And so, Lord, we love you this morning. We trust you with our lives. We trust that you're for us, that you're not against us. And Father, I just ask now that you would take our tithes and our offerings, Lord, and you would use them for your glory. Lord, we thank you so much for the ways that you have blessed us, for the ways you've been good to us. We pray all of this in your son's name. Amen.